I've been waiting now for years to sit in, literally to sit in that theater with that crowd and see this movie tonight. This is like as good as it gets. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. It's September 10th, and I'm at the Toronto International Film Festival. When my interviewee, writer and director Ryan Johnson, enters the room, the energy is instantly infectious. I feel like a kid. It's It's Christmas morning. It's Christmas morning. I can't blame him for being excited. In just a few hours, Glass Onion, the follow-up to his box office smash, Knives Out, will have its world premiere at this very festival. For me, this has been a long-awaited conversation. I've been a Ryan Johnson fan ever since I saw his first feature, Brick, at the 2005 Sundance Film Festival. The film, which starred a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, confidently blended style and setting, ultimately winning him a special jury prize for originality of vision. In the years since, Ryan's continued to lead with creativity, bringing freshness and zeal to films like The Brothers Bloom, Looper, and The Last Jedi. My kids are also huge fans of his work on the legendary series Breaking Bad, of which he directed three episodes. Then, in 2019, Ryan released Knives Out, a wildly entertaining whodunit that featured a killer ensemble cast, including Daniel Craig as the master sleuth Benoit Blanc. After years of anticipation, the second installment of the Knives Out franchise is finally here. This time around, Blanc travels to Greece to peel back the layers of a mystery involving a new cast of colorful suspects. I have Ryan Johnson here uh, in the chair of Skip Intro, which I'm so excited about. And right as he was sitting down, I reminded him that I saw your first real big movie, right? Brick in Sundance. Huge movie. And I remember that feeling. I remember you as being this new director and uh, this big, it was like a discovery and everyone loved this film. And I think it went on to win the audience uh, award or one of those. They did like a special award for it. And looking back, it's really cool because I shared, it was like me and Miranda July both like got that same award and it's like very cool with her first movie. So, uh, but yeah, my God, we were so, we were so young. So young. <laughs> and, and now here we are. You, you've got this second installment of It's the Knives Out to Glass Onion. Uh, Benoit, he is back for the second time in this fabulous ensemble. Very similar to the first with another fabulous ensemble. So talk to me a little bit about this genre in particular that it, it keeps coming back. This The writing, the voice, that character. Yeah. Where does that come from? from well, you? I mean, the whole thing started with Agatha Christie. When I was a kid, I, I, hers were kind of like, I don't know, there were always Agatha Christie paperbacks on the shelf. Uh, and at, at my parents' home and my grandparents' home, it felt like kind of the first uh, adult book that I would pick off the shelf as a kid and start reading. And then, of course, the Christie adaptations I was watching when I was a kid. There was, you know, Murder on the Orient Express, but the ones that I was really into were the Peter Houston novels. Oh, my God. I think because he (laughs) played more into the humor of Poirot, and as a kid, I responded to that. And so uh, Death on the Nile is just, I mean, classic, but then Evil Under the Sun, Mm -hmm. which has much more of an influence on this movie, actually. Mm -hmm. This movie, along with Last of Sheila, Glass Onion is probably most influenced just tonally and in terms of the setting by Evil Under the Sun. Anyway, it started just with the idea of 
of a whodunit and wanting to approach that genre. But for a while, it was largely Christie adaptations, a lot of mm-hmm. which were great, and I love Christie, but the, the thing was they tended to be period pieces set in England. Very familiar. We're big on Brit Box in my house. And I love it. It's fantastic. Miss Marple and the Hercule Poirot, yes. And I am am a whodunit junkie, and I I watch all of those, and I absolutely love them. At the same time, it felt like, okay, when Christie was writing those, she wasn't writing these quaint little things set in the past. She wasn't writing little nostalgic things. She wasn't writing things that were contained and out of our world. She was writing to her time and she was writing in the moment and she was engaging with her current culture. And so the idea of doing what she did then in terms of let's write a whodunit that takes place in America right now and let's engage with what's happening right now um, you know, not that these are huge social message or huge political or cultural movies, whatever. They're largely whodunits and they're they're mostly entertainments. But just like Christie did, they're also engaged with uh, America in in mm-hmm. this case. You know the. Mm-hmm. 2020s. Yeah, no, I think of Knives Out completely popping, obviously not just in the whole structure of the Anna de Armas character, but also in the zeitgeist, Chris Evans in the sweater. You brought back the, <laughs> the fisherman sweater. I mean, it really hit mm. It hit a nerve on all levels, I think. That's Jenny Egan, our genius costume designer who did Glass Onion also. And, yeah. Uh, the costumes are amazing in Glass. Because, of course, in yeah. Glass Onion, we're in Greece. There's the caftans. There's, like, a lot of great costumes as well. Okay, I wanted to talk about the cast and we'll save Daniel Craig for a little bit later but again you're assembling this cast and it has to have a certain amount of chemistry obviously you can there's no repeats other than uh, than the lead character yeah. right yeah. do you write for a certain actor in mind or is it all come later mm. after it's finished yeah I no, I, I never uh, I'd say incredibly rarely will I write for like a specific actor because I've learned that um, inevitably, if you do that, unless you're like very good friends with the person already, um, the, you, you don't end up getting who you want for whatever reason, yeah. and then, and then your heart's broken. So no, I, I tend to just write to the character and then figure out, okay, who can play this. Um, and to the point where it was actually a real challenge with this one. This is the first time I've ever written not only with an actor in a part, but also with an established character. Mm-hmm. I found I had to, in a way, kind of flush sort of my memory now from watching Knives Out a thousand times and making it uh, of Daniel out of my head Um, so I didn't start writing a caricature of Benoit Blanc Mm -hmm. just because I had his voice in my head already but no, you just I just wrote the story, wrote the characters, and then started thinking, okay, who would be fun in these parts? Seeing Edward Norton, incredible. Seeing Janelle Monae, seeing Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn, oh like Leslie. I was it was just so fun, and then all the cameos. Yeah. So okay, I when I first saw it, I couldn't believe I saw I was watching the film right, and I'm like, wait. And there's a cameo early, yeah. early in the in the beginning, and it's Eddie Gordetsky. Okay, I'm you, like, know Eddie! Eddie! you know I'm Eddie. You know Eddie. Is that Eddie? Well, Coco's was, in there and Coco. Too. I was like, wait, Coco, yeah. is that Eddie? Is that Coco? Is yeah. that Eddie? Is it yeah. Coco? I was like, wait, this can't be. And it's like that. <laughs> Eddie and Coco are very good friends of mine. I'm good buddies with that Eddie. Was a and as a fa- as a favor, they came in and did it, and it, it brings me much joy that Eddie Gordetsky. Oh, is and they in made the movie. cut. It was so great. Eddie, for those listening who aren't friends with Eddie. Uh, Eddie Eddie Gordetsky is a uh, he's a TV, he's a television writer and producer. He worked with Chuck Lorre. He did you know uh, Two and a Half Men and lots of things. He also though 
is just an incredible raconteur. He's an amazing, um, he'd probably cringe if I use the word musicologist, but he has the <laughs> yeah. hugest record collection yeah. of anyone I know. He does work with Bob Dylan. Uh, he's buddies with Dylan and, and works with him. He worked with him on the radio show that Dylan did, and kind of uh, he's just an all-around kind of Renaissance man, How did wonderful you meet? human being. I met him initially through a connection through Ricky Jay. Who, oh yeah. Um, being friends with Ricky and also my friend Dan Sheridan, who was Ricky's assistant for many years and is also in that Zoom. It's a it's a family affair that opening Zoom call. Yeah, it was through Ricky and Dan that I met and Ricky's wife Chris Ann, mm-hmm. uh, who I who I met Eddie yeah. through. Yeah. That's so good. That's yeah, so I'm so happy I mean, you spotted the great the yeah, Eddie, the Eddie cameo. So would you have ever imagined when you were you grew up in Maryland, you were a movie buff, right? Mm-hmm. No family. It wasn't in the family business. No uncle was an actor, nope. anything like that. But you just really loved movies. Yeah, I was like born in Maryland and then grew up in Colorado. And then like I headed west. It was manifest destiny. It was in Maryland, Colorado. And then where'd Alabama. you grow up in Colorado? I was near Denver. And yeah. most of my family is still out there. No, I connection. grew up in Denver. That's oh, you I did? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. Um, east High School. Yeah, I think I probably would have gone to west if I had yeah. stuck around. Yeah. And, uh, but I just went to grade school. I was basically a kid in Denver and then moved to Southern California. But yeah, no, I had no connection at all to the movie business. I just loved, I just loved movies. And I just like started like telling stories and writing stories. And then as soon as I could get my hands on a video camera, I was like one of those kids. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then did you feel like going to USC made a huge difference for you? Or are you still with that crew of people that you came through with? Yeah. So my, my, uh, you know, one of my best friends and my cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, I met on a student film set when I was a freshman. He was still in high school, actually. Um, and I got a bunch of friends that we all we're in the dorms together at USC and yeah and I think that's the way that film school really does make a difference I don't know that you really learn how to make movies in a classroom I think that comes from watching movies and making your own movies but the people that you meet in that environment who you then hang around with and are broke with in your 20s and are all slamming your head against a wall trying feeling like is this ever going to happen are we ever going to get to make movies that's kind of the I don't know, that's the real value of it is the friendships that kind of happen there and carry you through into wherever mm-hmm. you end up landing. Yeah. I mean, all that headbanging aside, like yeah. what what did you learn through that process? Because I think about it and I was saying our lovely crew here, they're very excited that you were coming in. I mean, you've been so prolific. It seems like to me in a super short amount of time in terms of the oh, obviously knives. Like right, that's what I mean. Knives out last I mean, obviously The Last Jedi, <laughs> Looper, yeah. you know, all the early stuff. Yeah. It's It feels like wow, he really, you know, was shot out of a cannon. But what did you learn through all that headbanging? Uh, I mean, first of all, that there's no, there's no cannon shooting. It really is, it's really is just clawing your way out of the cannon, I think. And, uh, yeah, I really, I wrote my first movie, Brick, right out of college. So I wrote it when I was 22, 23, and I didn't get it made you know, um, until I was 30, which I know is still very, very young to get it made, but it was, you know, it, w- it was a good seven, eight years of, of, of trying to get it made and just failing and feeling like this is never going to happen. And, um, and I think it's, it's, it's tough because during that time I would, I would ask people who had, who had made their first movie, like, how do you do it? And they would always give, you know, answers that I would be really frustrated with. Like, well, you just got perseverance. Well, you just have to not give up. Just, just. And I was like, screw you. What's the, yeah. how do you actually do it? And, 
But it's it now looking back, it's really hard because it's like there there are no answers. But those ones, the reality is, it, it it's a different you know, it's a different path for every single person, and the path rolls up behind the heels of every person who does it. And the reality is, the only thing that does matter is that you don't give up until you you know until you get your movie made. And mm-hmm. um, and there are going to be. 98% of the time it's going to feel like it's never going to happen but I really believe if you if you work on your voice if you work on your skills if you just keep making your own stuff even if it's just shorts that never see the light of day or these days you just post on your Vimeo or just keep a camera in your hand and keep making stuff and keep being creative and just work internally on just getting better at telling mm-hmm. stories with pictures um, I don't know It's the reality is the if you get good at that, you are a rare commodity, and mm-hmm. you you should have faith in that, and you should have faith that if you keep putting yourself out there, you know, in, in some way, shape, or form, you'll 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 wind up where you should be. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. When you're writing, so you're writing Glass Onion. Do you already know exactly what's going to happen, or does anything change as you're writing? Do you fall oh in love God. with a different character and be like, oh no, I need this to happen here, or is it pretty? Is it all storyboarded <clears throat> out before you start? Well, I mean, the the basic skeleton of it is is storyboarded out, but even that, I mean, there are different kind of at, at various phases, the same thing happens over and over, which is, you know, imagine like Napoleon with his generals, like in a big. French like boardroom like with a maps laid out on the table and all their wooden tanks making all their plans and looking zoomed back at the battlefield and saying oh yeah we move this here this here and then we flank here and this will work and then you get on the battlefield and you do pretty much do that but you have to adjust and just kind of survive the day that happens from outlining to writing and that happens then from writing to production, and then that happens from production to editing. That exact same thing in each each one of those three things, I think. So, so I do a really detailed outline, and I figure out the you know mechanics of the story, and I figure out okay, this is what the audience kind of the arcs of what is the audience following, what are they caring about, what's carrying them through, how do those arcs hand off to one another. And then you start writing it, and you're actually then in the flow of a narrative experience more the way an audience will experience it, and you end up adjusting. You end up feeling like, ah, that feels too abrupt. Ah, that feels contrived, but maybe if we do this. And you find yourself kind of being carried off down the river. But you couldn't do that without the initial base of of that skeleton, I think. And then the exact same happens from your script to production. You've got your beautiful script, it seems perfect, and then you put it on its feet with actors, and on the day, you can't just say it's perfect on the page, so that's how it has to be. You, it has to feel right when it's on its feet. And if it doesn't, you got to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get all your scenes beautifully shot, and you get in the edit, and the thing <laughs> happens again, and you're like, okay, we, we had this plan, but you got to kind of throw it out in the edit and, and just make the movie work. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have some amazing set pieces in this film with absolute controlled chaos happening. And I'm wondering, on some of those set pieces, do things change in that day? Well, somewhat. When, when you're filming, the thing that probably changes the least is when there's a complex sequence 
that has a bunch of little pieces that you have to shoot separately that then have to fit together. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, it helps to be really precise. It helps to be storyboarded. It helps to know exactly what you're getting and what the function of each piece is and why. I would say the things that end up changing more on the day are when you have an actual long scene that Mm -hmm. the actors dig into and there's dynamics between them that are playing off Mm -hmm. and there's blocking that you're figuring out on the day. Um, And that's more when you end up playing but uh for some of these big set pieces that that are really fun in the movie it is a little bit more like like carving gears that need to fit right. together so you got to be a little more precise yeah um all right let's talk about daniel craig did okay you, did you always imagine him as your benoit no oh god no no he was it, I, I like i said before i kind of like just wrote the character in the vacuum basically i i actually when i started right and i talked about this a bit like when i was talking about knives out jeez three but uh, when I started writing the Benoit Blanc character, I think I kind of screwed myself up because I started wanting to create, I have to create a Poirot, I have to create a Sherlock, I need quirks. And so I started loading him up with all these quirks and um, he just kind of became a ridiculous kind of like, I was like, what if he had a monocle? What if he had an iPad? What if he had different colored eyes? And finally I was like, okay, I, I kind of threw out, I said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to try and create a character on the page beyond what his actions are in the mystery. And so the only thing I gave him was, I think I called it like a light Southern drawl. Mm -hmm. And then I just wrote to his function in the story and kind of thought, okay, when I find whoever's going to play this, then we'll work together and we'll kind of create the character. And so with Daniel, that's very much what happened. It wasn't like we changed... The dialogue or change the script or anything, but just Daniel inhabiting that role and bringing kind of his vibe to it um, instantly brought it to life and no eye patch required, thank God. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. And he, what what I like about it as an audience member is it just looks like he's having so much fun doing it. He is having a lot of fun. Yeah. He's putting a lot of work into it. It's It's amazing the amount that he works on this character and what he puts in to be prepared when he steps onto set. Having glimpsed behind the curtain, he makes it look really easy. And it, he is having a tremendous amount of fun, but he's also just a phenomenally skilled actor who just has this incredible toolbox of skills um, and works works his ass off at it. So, But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super well done, just the way everyone revolves around Tim, even when he's not there. And it's just yeah. it's so, I love, <laughs> I don't know, am I allowed to say series? I mean, it's not, yeah, there's it's two, series, but I yeah. love this series I hope so we can, much. I hope we can keep making it. And them, I didn't yeah. even know the Glass Onion was a Beatles song. So, oh, yeah, yeah. No, so I didn't. I know think, the song, but yeah. I didn't know that's what it was called. I did not think that Beatles Deep Cuts existed. I was like, oh, Glass Onion, the Beatles song. And so many people, even when I started showing friends the script, were like, so what is the, and yeah, they didn't, didn't, didn't know. So I guess it is a deep cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's on it's on the White Album. I'm, it's one of my favorite Beatles songs. Yeah. yeah, no, it's great. There is a great dinner party scene in, in the film. Yeah. And it got me thinking when I looked at all the cameos and knowing your wife, not personally, but knowing her work on uh, her podcast, uh, you must remember this. Yes. I was thinking, what would Ryan Johnson's dinner party be? Who would you have at oh your own dinner party, God. living or dead? Who would you want there? Oh my God. I mean, I do because, because I'm a fan of my wife as well. Uh, and her podcast, it I mean, it is tempting just to fill it up with kind of these personalities that the old Hollywood personalities that 
I mean, even though he would probably get drunk and punch somebody by the end of the night, to invite Robert Mitchum over for <laughs> for for dinner would be pretty. It would be so exciting until pretty, that point. Pretty yeah. tempting. Yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, the reality is also like, you know, I don't know, there are so many directors that I would love to just sit back and let them hold court to have John Huston over and who would probably also get drunk and punch somebody by the end of the night. There's a, there's a running theme here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I have a feeling that between Karina and I, we, that we would assemble a pretty amazing group of old Hollywood ghosts who would all be punching mm-hmm. each other. Yeah, there was a lot of drinking back then. It felt like there was a lot of, people, you know, that's what people did. It people was... drank in ways that I don't think we can really, yeah, even appreciate today. Mm-hmm. We're, we're lightweights. But you know what? Thank Do you God. have one particular influence that you say is the strongest? I mean, I know that for this particular genre, you love the Agatha Christie stuff and all those, that rich world of, of characters. But is, but is Ryan the filmmaker, is there someone <laughs> that you always go back to that kind of was your influence? I mean, I, I love a lot of directors, and there's a lot that I try and pull. I, I think I'm making my, my first TV show, which is kind mm-hmm. of like a, a, it's called Poker Face. Natasha Leone's in it, and it's kind of a, mystery series but for that and this just with the mechanics of it and the suspense i do keep coming back to the fundamentals of of hitchcock when i was at Mm -hmm. usc there was a this professor drew casper started this hitchcock class i think he still does and so i got to watch over the course of a semester a huge part of a huge like sampling of hitchcock's work and just the very basic clarity of his visual storytelling as it relates to suspense with an audience there's so much to be learned from it's not even like a stylistic thing in terms of crazy shots or any kind of wild flourishes or anything it really just comes down to the fundamentals of what is the audience paying attention to what are you drawing their attention to in the frame and how are you editing it to build tension and it really comes down to clarity Mm -hmm. um i keep coming back to that word over and over as i'm talking to other directors who are doing episodes for the series and as i'm like thinking about it myself um it really comes down to clarity in terms of visual storytelling which Mm -hmm. sounds very unromantic but that's kind of the fundamentals of building suspense i made my kids when they were young i would watch what movie that they would want to watch and i'd show them a classic along that path right of every other week right if it was a weekend we would do like a friday night movie night i showed them rear window and they were terrified oh really it was so interesting and the terror of that that scene and then in birds my my oldest who's now 16 still gives me grief about me showing him birds (laughs) they were so scared by it but you look at it you think of the gotcha and all the horror that we're kind of used to now that that kids get but you realize how effective he was well and and all that stuff like the birds is a great example that's you know that famous scene where all the birds are gathering on the on the you know on the whatever is the jungle gym and it um and what works about that is not like that he's doing some crazy camera moves or whatever it is the simplicity and the clarity of you understanding what is happening in the moment when he wants you to understand it and that i think is kind of the essence of I don't know of, of what he does does so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool that they're into. Yeah, it, no, it's they, great to it's, hear. Yeah. It's, and now, like I said earlier, he's watching Breaking Bad. He's he's cringing. Oh <laughs> so, my god! All right, the movie's going to premiere tonight. Giant audience. Are you going to sit through? Do you of sit course. through all of Are it? You okay. Kidding. This is Christmas. This is Christmas morning. Getting. I have been waiting for. I've been waiting now for years to sit in literally to sit in that theater with that crowd and see this movie tonight this is this is like as good as it gets yeah right because knives out premiered uh this exact same
same theater. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right here three years ago, yeah. All right, so do you already have the other, the third in the series oh in God. your mind What right do you now? want from my life? I did just ne- want to know. Did Netflix send you? Oh, <laughs> no. God. <laughs> but I'm just curious. As I'm a already... writer, you're you're so prolific and you're thinking all the time. I Are feel you like already... I'm slow, but God bless you for using yeah. using the P word. See, you just yeah. think about what you, it's, you know, your image of yourself and the outside. I'm looking as like, God, he's so prolific. You must be like, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm manufacturing that illusion. I feel like I just (laughs) sit around and (laughs) sit around and waste time. I'm, I'm, I am already like trying, starting to, and I think not because I feel like, boy, I better get the next one going, but because it's so much fun. And Mm -hmm. because also the other thing I'm really, that gets me genuinely excited is, um, you know, Knives Out and Glass Onion are so different Mm -hmm. in so many ways. And that is that's something that gen- first of all that harkens back to Christy in another way that's exciting for me how she would always find ways of completely shaking it up from book to book and making it exciting for the reader but you could also tell exciting for her she was creatively challenging mm-hmm. herself each time and the notion of doing of with the third movie truly showing that each one of these is going to have its own personality beyond setting beyond bikinis versus sweaters or mm-hmm. what, what have you, that it truly is going to be trying something different narratively and tonally. That is so much fun to me. And in the context of a genre I love working in, the whodunit, and in the and getting to work with, you know, a, a guy who's just one of the best actors on earth and is, is now a good friend. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it, it, it just genuinely, I'm kind of already excited mm-hmm. about doing mm-hmm. the next one. Yeah. You know, I love the series. And also, like Agatha Christie, if you actually think about, you know, her stuff, she was writing about, like, a period, but those times, like, you know, oh, yeah. themes of class, thing, you know, all the stuff that was going through society Completely. at that time, she peppered it in. Absolutely. And her female characters mm-hmm. and the notion of kind of, like, the young-spirited women coming mm-hmm. up in the world versus the, yeah, modernity versus kind of, like, mm-hmm. the the way it was. It's, and, it's all there, yeah. Yeah, and that's what I love about this film in particular is how you 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 beautifully work in what all of us are like living it through in our lives which I just think <laughs> is genius and it's like such a great experience yeah, um, people are going to love it and I'm so happy to talk to you so thank you so much this for was so much fun coming for through me. and um, you have a fan in me for sure so ah, I, nice, I'm so excited to see how it goes Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery is streaming on Netflix December 23rd thanks so much for joining me I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. Thank you.